1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. This is one of the most notoriously opaque passages in all of Scripture. Many scratch their heads and move right on through it, pretend it doesn't exist, and others skip it completely. And so this morning we're going to start in chapter 12. I'm kidding, kidding. If nothing else, this message will show you, uh, if you haven't figured it out already, how entirely committed to expository preaching I am. I do think this passage gets a bad rap, though, because while the details are cloudy, um, murky, uh, the overall thrust of the passage, the, the main idea of the passage, I actually think is pretty clear. And I've outlined it for you there. I said that God's authority is good and should be honored in gender, marriage, and the church. The reason I think that most folks shy away from this particular section of Scripture is because its teaching is it's unpopular, right? Anytime you bring up authority structures, uh, distinctions in gender, the idea of uh, headship and helping, people bristle, especially in our culture. Uh, a lot of the Bible's teaching is like sandpaper on your skin. You know, I couldn't say that. I don't know that, that my God would look like that. Um, but it is the clear teaching of, of Scripture. I actually had one of the last times I taught on um, uh, headship and authority and submission, I had a, a woman who the whole message just shook her head just the whole time vigorously at me. And uh, that was pretty disconcerting. Uh, and maybe that might be you this morning. Uh, I'd love to uh, try and persuade you uh, to what I think the Bible teaches. Um, but as a favor to me, maybe don't shake your head at me the whole time. Just help me, help me out a little bit. Uh, do me a favor. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be all right. It is a difficult um, subject, I think, but my hope is to show you that while many in our culture might think of it as a wrong idea, just flat out wrong versus just a hard teaching, uh, I, I want to persuade you that uh, authority is a good thing, that this teaching is a very good thing, and we have a very good God who desires to bless us, and where we will find the most blessing is by living according to his design for our lives. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord knows we need his help, and, uh, and we'll work through the text. God, we thank you that even though men and their philosophies wither like grass and fall dead as flowers do in the winter, that your word never fails that it's faithful and true, that it is useful for correcting and teaching. And we ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to it even now. God, you are so good to us. We just pray that you would meet us in an unexpected way from an unexpected text this morning. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I think first thing is first, this passage is going to center on the controversy over head coverings or hairstyles. Uh, the problem here is we don't really know if it's a head covering or a hairstyle. 
but one way or another, the, a head covering hairstyle is communicating something to the church and to the culture within Corinth. And so Paul is, is, is writing to uh, the men and women of this church, and, and he's, he's telling them that it's really important to utilize this symbol of authority. And so culturally, I guess just um, some more context-wise, uh, these head coverings or hairstyle, again, we don't know which, it, which is which, uh, it, it communicated about submission and sexuality. And so if you were a young lady in this particular culture, what you would do to communicate your respect for your father or if you were married, your respect for your husband and ultimately for your God was uh, you would wear your hair up in a bun perhaps or uh, have a head covering of some type like a scarf. Right? That's, that's what's going on. We're not sure which it is. Um, but if you were to remove the, the head covering or let your hair down, as some suggested, it would be kind of like uh, loose hair, loose women. Yeah, this was kind of the, uh, the, the view of that with me. And, and so it was this idea of I'm rejecting the authority of my father or husband. Right? I'm my own person. You see, what's happening is there is a sexual revolution afoot in Rome. And that teaching has begun seeping into the Corinthian church. And so uh, what, what is happening is women are demanding to be treated as, and they are acting as men. And, and Paul is saying, yes, you, you are free in Christ. In Christ there is no distinction between uh, male or female, uh, Jew or Greek, slave or free, but these distinctions remain, right? He's saying you are equal in God's sight in terms of your dignity, value, and worth, but you, you are different. These, these things that differentiate you are, are, are good things. Your, your distinctiveness in your gender is, is good. Maybe I'll be ahead to just get into the text instead of trying to give you all the background. Uh, let's look at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is like the first nice thing that Paul has said since chapter 1, the first 10 verses to them. So y'all are doing a great job. And then here comes the but in verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of every woman, or of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Notice that there is just a very um, low-level version of humor going on here, some wordplay with the word head. It's a pun. So, so check it out. Uh, the man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Who is the head of the man in verse 3? Christ. So if a man puts something on his head or perhaps has a hairstyle that's similar to that of a woman in the culture based on our reading of head coverings, I'm just going to use the word head coverings from this point forward, he is dishonoring Christ. That's the proposition. Verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, as a man would, dishonors her head. Well, back in verse 3, her head is the man. She shames him. Since... That is one and the same as having her head shaved. To have your head shaved was a symbol of disgrace and shame. For if a woman, verse 6, doesn't cover her head, 
she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. I'm going to drop down to verse 13 at this point. Paul says, Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. And so same idea in verses 13 and 14. Paul is saying, just just look at what is true in general. Uh, Men are to act as men. Women are to act as women. That's kind of his point here. We don't want to blur the distinction between uh, what a man is and what a woman is. Y'all with me so far? I'm saying gender matters in the structure and scheme of God. And you ought to submit to how God has made you because that is how you are going to be most satisfied in him and it's how he is going to be most glorified in you. And so the, the theological underpinning of this text, the foundation upon which it is poured, is given to us all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to examine a little bit of Genesis 1 together here. But what you need to know is that when it comes to gender issues in our culture and in the church, there are typically four camps. There's the, the feminist camp that says uh, men screwed everything up, and if women can just get the reins a little bit, it'll be all good, Right? Uh, there's the chauvinist camp uh, where uh, that kind of says men are just better in every way. Uh, you need to make sure that your wife stays barefoot and pregnant and at home. Uh, don't teach her to read. It'd be bad, right? Thank you, Aristotle. Uh, there's also the egalitarian camp where they say men and women are equal and there's, there's no distinction. Except I think they'll acknowledge a physical one. And then lastly, there's the, the position that I'm arguing for this morning. I think it's the teaching of Scripture. It's called complementarianism. And you can hear what it teaches in the Word, that men and women are, are different, but they complement one another. You know, like, like peanut butter and jelly, or, or a nice steak and, and a good red wine, or a lock and a key, Right? So it's, a, it's a beautiful thing that, that, that men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value. They're equally the image of God, but they are distinct in the part that they play inside of God's creation, particularly within marriage and the church. You're going to hear me say that line probably a hundred times, I think. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 27, and Typically what happens when people are discussing gender issues is those that are more on the there's no difference side will emphasize Genesis chapter 1, whereas those where, hey, it's all about the man will emphasize chapter 2, but, but we're going to be good complementarians and we're going to let the creation accounts complement one another as they should. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, you'll be very familiar with it, and I'm going to read to the end of verse 28. So God created man in his own image he created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, rule the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so what we see here, what should be very evident to you, 
is that both men and women image God in their maleness and femaleness. You understand? Like Both are equally the image of God, but they are reflecting the image of God in very different ways. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but, but there are, there's a man and a woman because that's how God wants to image himself. That's how God has created them. It goes beyond simply uh, the statement or the command to be fruitful and multiply and to rule together in the garden. God, God has assigned them their particular gender because he is going to be most glorified as they embrace that particular gender or sex. I think that this, this is a difficult, it didn't used to be so difficult, but I think it's a, a more difficult teaching uh, in our contemporary culture that, that God has the final say about who you are, right? I think this, this makes good sense um, because uh, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 11.3, God's ultimately the head of everything. He's, he's the creator. He, he's the source of life. And uh, as the source of all things, he has the right to define them. And so like an author has authority over his writing or a potter has authority over clay or a parent has authority over a child, the creator has authority over his creation. And when he makes you and knits you together in the womb, what he has said is this person, Joe or Jane, whichever I've made you, you will glorify me most by living according to the way you are made. And you have been made as a male or a female. Reflect my glory accordingly. Now, if you do struggle with, with gender identity, it's, it's okay, you're not weird. Uh, we, we all struggle with sin. And, and the gender identity conflict where you think like, hey, I, I was born a man, but I feel like a woman or vice versa, it's, that's just the way that sin manifests in your life. Sin manifests in my life maybe in a different way, in someone else's life in a different way, but you're not, you're not weird, you're not, you're not different. The, the gospel calls you to do the same thing as the rest of us, which is to, to, to fight sin to submit to God's authority. And it might, it might feel like dying, but that's, that's what following Jesus is. It's, it's, it's saying, I am dying to myself so that I might live to Christ. I'm denying myself. I'm not going to recast myself according to my feelings because I recognize that my feelings and following my heart is what put humanity in this mess in the first place. I wanted to do what I wanted to do instead of listening to your will, God, and that is what's turned the whole world upside down. That's what has ushered in sin and death and suffering. Like The human heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. I can't, can't trust my feelings. And, and friends, you can't even really trust your mind. I, I think apart from Christ, sin looks so appealing to us. We are like, like people, uh, a person that's parched and in the desert wandering and they see that mirage of an oasis. There's water there and they're going to drink. And, and you get up, they get up there and they start pouring that water into their mouth and then all of a sudden their eyes are open and, and when you come to Christ, it's what happened. Your eyes are open and you realize that it's sand. 
that's not nourishing you, those, those things that you thought were helping you aren't, aren't, they're killing you. And that living water has been available to you in your backpack all the time, bottled up. You just had to access it. God, God wants to glorify himself through who he's made you. And you're going to be most free, most satisfied when you embrace how it is he made you, whether it's your masculinity or your femininity. Both have a unique and glorious part to play in the concert of creation. And so that's, that's what Paul is getting at on the front end here in verses 4 through 6. And on the back end in 13 and 14, he's saying, don't blur the distinction between the genders. God put them there for a reason because that's how he wants to glorify himself. And he has the right to define how he ought to be glorified. He has the right to define you. So submit to him. His authority is good and it's for your blessing. And so that's the, the first thing I think we see in this text is that gender matters Let's look at verse 3. I need a drink of water. I'm trying to hold my page at the same time, so it might look awkward for a second. Because we're going to go back to Genesis in, in just a quick. So, 11.3. That was loud. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. And God is is the head of Christ. Three observations that some will not like from this, this text. That man is the head of woman, that Christ is the head of man, and that God is the head of Christ. This is not to disparage women. It, it doesn't. I, I've given you a little um, diagram. Uh, this is maybe more theological than, than you like to get sometimes. But you see that, that triangle and, and I, I give it to you for this reason. I want to show you that a difference in role doesn't mean a difference in value or in worth. But it does mean distinction. It, it's different. So there's a quality and distinction in, in our gender roles, but also within God himself. And this is what I mean. Uh, is the Father God? Yes. Is the Son God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit the Father? No. Is the Son the Father? No. Is the Father the Son? No. And so you see inside the triangle, we see that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But also, kind of on the outside there, you see that one is not the other. That, that's, that's Christianity. That's our Trinitarian God. That we have one God, who exists eternally in three persons in perfect community that are equal and distinct and the same God. It's the beautiful mystery of God's just godness, his other thanness. But within this, we get to see that just because there is a distinction in role, that doesn't make one less valuable. You see, Jesus comes to earth as, God the Son takes on flesh, comes to earth as Jesus, and he does everything his Father commands him. I mean, read the Gospel of John. 
I don't speak the words that are mine. I speak what the Father wants me to speak. I don't do what I want to do. I do what the, the Father wants me to do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will. He submits himself perfectly to the Father throughout his life. And this does not make him any less God than God the Father. It doesn't make him any less God than God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make him any less valuable than the rest of God. See, he is God, but he has a distinct function. There is equality and there is distinction. Likewise, men and women are equally the image of God, equal in value, dignity, and worth. Yet they are distinct in terms of the function that they play within creation, specifically the church and within marriage. The next thing I want to point out, and I should have pointed out at the front end, is that in Greek, there is no unique word for husband or wife, man or woman. Same word, right? Gune uh, means wife and woman. And so how you translate the term, same thing with, with men and husband, is based on context. And I think that uh, this passage is a little bit deliberately ambiguous because it is speaking to all men and women at once. But I think in terms of headship, which, we, which is in verse 3, it's speaking in particular to married couples. Because uh, if it weren't, then you have a lot of women with a lot of heads and that might be a bit of a monstrosity. I think there's like a, a Greek myth about that or something. It's like seven heads. At any rate, I'm reading this in terms of the husband is the head of the wife. And the question is, it's clear that the, the husband is the head, uh, but we first ask the question, well, why? Like, he's not that great, right? <laughs> like, you've, you've been married to him, you know. <laughs> he's got some flaws. But what, why is he the head? And Paul, Paul gives us reasons in verse 7. A man should not cover his head, shouldn't act like a woman, because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. This is not a statement, as we saw from Genesis 1.27, that she's any less the image of God, but that simply uh, as um, Adam was created from God, ex nihilo, or I guess out of the dust, uh, woman was created from man. And so man is God's glory, and, and she is the glory of man. Verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of of man. So here, here's his two reasons. Uh, man was made first, is why he's the head. And then the second reason is that woman is from man and for man in her function. Right? Again, this is built on the foundation of the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of Genesis 2. You can turn there if you want. But in Genesis 2, what we have is uh, in the first uh, eight or so verses, God has made the earth. He's made a garden. He's made Adam. He puts Adam into the garden, and he says, rule everything. The woman is not there yet. He even gives Adam the prohibition in verse 17. Don't eat from the tree of life. And so what we have here is, at a minimum, a temporal priority, a priority in time. I think this is similar to uh, when Jesus is called the firstborn in Colossians, right? It's a statement of his priority rather than of him ever being born. 
right? And, and so likewise, Adam is having the priority of being first. That's why the firstborn inherits and all that fun stuff. Adam's special because he's first. So he's got the rule to, um, he's, got, he's got the command to rule the garden, and he's got the prohibition not to eat from the tree. And it's here in verse 18 that we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him, suitable for him, a helper that is his complement. The next thing that happens, though, is not Eve showing up. There's this weird section in between where Adam falls asleep uh, and God says that he's going to make a helper suitable for him where the animals are paraded in front of Adam. Right? Like, hey, uh, you know, name all these animals. He's naming them too. And he's like, uh, hippopotamus, giraffe. And, and the section's not about Adam's ability to make up funny syllables, right? And string them together. It, it's to show us two things. That there's not a helper suitable among the animals. That humanity is distinct from the animal kingdom. It's special and reflects the glory of God in a way that is more significant than the animal kingdom. That's first. And then second, it's to show us that Adam is doing what God has created him to do. He's ruling. He's naming these animals, which is a, a, to show his authority over them. Then it's at this point, uh, the Lord causes a deep sleep to come over Adam. You know, he steals the rib out, makes woman, and then Adam wakes up and, and sings that first love song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Not the greatest lyricist of all time. But, but what he's saying is, here is someone that is like me. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're not a d- giraffe. I don't know why that's the only animal I can think of right now. Not, not an elephant. This is someone who is like me. But she is different from me in all the right ways, you know. He's, he's excited. She shall be called woman. She comes from man. And so the, the, the narrative trajectory shows us Adam's temporal priority over Eve, but also that, that he's having a practical authority over her, that there is a, a headship. Also, she says that they, they complement one another, that they are going to image God together in the garden. And so, Adam is the head of Eve. And so, we've said uh, that husbands are, is the head of the wife. That, that makes good sense. But you say, what, what on earth does that look like? What does that even mean, right? This idea of headship. And let me tell you, I think it looks a billion different ways. I can tell you what it doesn't look like on the front end. It doesn't look like the chauvinist position earlier, right? It doesn't look like, hey, women shouldn't read. They should always be at home, only be raising kids. Uh, that she should do everything her, her husband says, you know, like, yes, massa. Like, that's not, that's not what's going on. In fact, that would be an abuse of headship. It's not you disagree with your wife on what to eat for dinner. You're like, I want wings. She wants a salad. And so it looks like we're having wings the rest of our lives because I'm the head, baby. Or you go to a a car lot and she wants a a, a red car and and you want a blue car. You go, you know what? Remember, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. 
it's time to start submitting. I'm getting that blue car. Because what, what would happen there is she would turn around and she would quote Ephesians 5.25 to you. Husbands, lay down your lives, this is my paraphrase, for your wives as Christ did the church. It says Ephesians 5.25 says that you should die for me. And this car situation is kind of short of that, you know. And she'd be right. She should get the red car. Because your headship isn't there for you to get your desires. It's there for you to serve and love and bless your wife. Authority is for love and for blessing. Right? Everybody tells us authority is bad in contemporary culture. I mean, go to the movies, see a movie. There will, at some point, there will be an authority figure that's bad that has to be rebelled against and overthrown. Authority, in and of itself, is good. It's for our blessing. Think about your first experience of authority and love. For most of us, I think it probably came in the context of our parents, right? I think that's a great example, and maybe you've been a parent or are a parent, where you recognize your authority is there. Not, you're, like, you're not concerned about making your child's life miserable, I hope, <laughs> the misuse of authority, but, but what you're aiming at is their flourishing and their good. Your desire is to bless them. Like if you tell them they can't do something, you know, hey, you, you can't play on the roof, which is a normal discussion with my kids. Like you, you can't play on the roof, not because I don't want you to have fun, but because you probably will die. Right? It's, it's for your good. Authority is for good. It's for love and for blessing. And, and I think that headship, the content of it, needs to be filled up by Ephesians 5.25. That when the Bible tells us that wives are to love their husbands, submit themselves their husbands as the church does to Jesus, and husbands are to love their wives and lay their lives down for them as Jesus does the church, like that's what should shape how we approach this matter. In the church, it's a joyous thing to submit to Jesus because we know he's good and that he loves us and that he dies for us. And Husbands, you love your wife. Jesus delighted to lay down his life for us. We were the joy set before him as he endured the cross. It's a good authority that exists within marriage and it exists to show us the goodness of God's authority in creation. It exists to make the gospel visible to us. I think that we are prone to believe the lie that authority is bad. And I think this has been, you know, Satan's goal from the beginning to convince us that authority is bad and that structure is bad. To convince us that authority and love cannot go together. And after all, why do you think he went to Eve in the first place? As the lowest of creatures. He doesn't go to 
Adam, but to Eve. And then Eve and Adam don't listen to the word of God, but to the word of the lowliest of creatures over which they were supposed to rule. What he is doing is trying to humiliate God by flipping the whole order of creation on its head. When he did that, when sin entered the world, indeed, everything has been made upside down. But that is why Jesus Christ came into the world, to set everything right side up. He came and did and lived the perfect life that we could not live, have not lived. He was everything that Adam was supposed to be. Peace with God is something that he deserves to enjoy. But instead of simply enjoying that peace, he lays down his life for his bride, for his church. He substitutes himself for our sin incurs the wrath and punishment that we deserve for rebelling against God's authority. Because, friends, we were all born into rebellion, and we've all taken part and participated in this rebellion by seeking our will instead of God's will, by following our hearts instead of listening to God's voice. And the penalty for treason is death. And Jesus comes and dies that death for us. That's, that's what is offered to you at the cross. Your sin, His righteousness. Your life for His life. That's a pretty good deal. But the kicker is, you, you can have that peace with God. You can have resurrection life with Christ, but only if you submit to his lordship. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean to just assent, yeah, Jesus is Lord. It means to believe him and to commit yourself to him entirely. He is Lord of your whole life. And when you submit to Jesus, you have begun to experience his setting of the world right side up. So how does headship look in marriage? I asked and I allowed Ephesians 5.25 to fill it up with content for us. And again, I'll say I think it can look a billion different ways. I think if it means most anything, it probably means having final say when you, you can't agree on something like important. And it's a final say that's always for the good of the other. But, it, but it, I think it looks different ways in different times and different seasons. Like in my own marriage, for example, and I think we have been obedient to these structures, uh, Chelsea has been the primary breadwinner for most of our marriage, I think. Although, how long? I've been here four years-ish now, so I maybe I'm passing her. But when I was in seminary, she worked 60-plus hours a week, and I went to school and worked like 20 hours. She's the builder in my house, most of you know. I'm not, not that great with my hands. You know, but she's got the power draw out there all the time. I'm doer of the dishes, right? <laughs> she's, she will take out the trash. That's just how things function. But those don't, ha- those don't relate to headship. Those are just things that we're doing. 
I think my point is to, to tell you that the woman that goes to work can be just as faithful as the woman that is staying home and raising her children. She can be just as faithful a helper as the woman that is at home with her kids. Likewise, the husband that stays is a stay-at-home dad can be just as, mu- is just as faithful a head of his household as the one who goes to work. Because his job isn't to exhort his superiority and to seek all of his desires. His job is to love and to bless his wife. That's what authority is there for. And what submission to this authority looks like for these women in Corinth who were blurring the lines of distinction between the genders is given to us in verse 10. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Let's clear the brush away. Uh, Because of the angels, right? Uh, Don't know what it means. I mean, you can read, there are a million, probably literally a million different explanations of uh, because of the angels, what that means. I don't know. But here's the thing. Just because we don't know doesn't mean we can dismiss it. We have to recognize it as adding some kind of weight to Paul's argument. As he's saying, God has made men and women different. Woman came from man for man. She's his helper. He's her head. And also the angels, right? This is why she should wear this symbol of authority on her head. Again, we don't know what it is. And so the question is, if you're a lady, do I need to wear you know, a head covering now? Eh. You know, not per se, like you can't really obey this command for a couple reasons. Um, because first, um, we don't know what the head covering was. We don't know if it was a particular hairstyle or a you know, scarf over the head or Mickey Mouse ears. We don't know. Don't know what it was. And then secondly, a head covering in our culture would communicate something different than it did in first century Rome. I think that's the right dating. But in Rome at this time, communicate something different. And so we have to do the same thing with this text that we do with every text. And so, for example, uh, the great command that shows up over and over again in the New Testament to, to greet one another with a holy kiss, right? That's a command. It's in the Bible. For the French, this is no problem, right? They, they, they greet family with kiss. It's a sign of family love and affection, you know, some guys come over here and uh, would try to greet some folks in our congregation with a holy kiss. It would not go well, I don't think. It would communicate something different. How that comes across in, in our culture is typically uh, hugs or handshakes. The, the principle under the command, what we're to be doing, is showing one another warm and loving affection, familial affection. And that can be shown with a handshake or a hug or a holy kiss If you're an Eskimo, maybe an Eskimo kiss, you know, you've seen those where they rub noses together like this, no? It it can take a variety of forms. You have to figure out how you apply this principle. And so the question is, how as a, a woman in contemporary United States do I show my respect for my husband and my God? I'll give you a couple suggestions, but, but primarily I want you to think about what it looks like for you yourself. I have two. First is dress. Dress. How you, how you dress communicates something. 
It communicates like about your sexuality and your submission in a way similar to the, the head covering can. And so uh, good questions to ask. Is this too short? Is this too low cut? Is this too tight? What are my clothes communicating about me to others? That I'm sexually available and promiscuous? Or is there some mystery there? Is it covered up? Because this is my body is only for my husband and for the Lord. Secondly, and I think this is more most important, is attitude and speech. Do you behave in a way that is befitting of a godly woman? To consider these things. Now verses 11 and 12, Paul's laid down all this line. He said that, that man has authority over the woman. And just in case he misses the point and starts to puff his chest out, he writes, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. And all things come from God. She is not inferior to you. She's equal in dignity, worth, and value, equally the image of God. She just plays a different part in the scheme of marriage. You are to use your authority to bless her. Your authority is for her flourishing. And so here's a question for you, husbands. How have you laid down your life for your wife this week? Is your wife better for being married to you? Let me qualify better there too. Better, I think, means being closer to Jesus. Are you leading her spiritually? Are you on a Sunday morning, the one that's up and ready to go to church, or is she dragging you out of bed? You are to use your authority for her blessing. I think maybe this looks, for, for some of us, like just practically saying, I'm going to start doing things differently in my home spiritually. Uh, I'm going to, tonight, take my wife aside for five minutes and we're going to pray together. It'll be for her good. It'll be a right stewardship of your authority to bless her. We have verse 16 is the only remaining verse. He says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. I think he's saying, you can argue about this, but there's only one way that genuine Christians and true churches obey this command. And it's the way I've just outlined it to you. It's a submission to God's authority structure. To do it another way is to disobey Christ. I think in our culture it is very tempting for churches to capitulate on all kinds of matters related to marriage and to gender identity. The, the applause of people can be quite alluring. 
But let me remind you, friends, it cannot hold a candle to adoption into the family of God. The fleeting pleasure of the approval of contemporary man is nothing compared to the eternal smile of God upon you, which you have if you have put your faith in Christ and submitted yourself to Him. Jesus is our example in this. Men, He's our example in how we live our lives for our wives. But women, He's also your example. You know in marriage you are playing the role of the church. But when you want to think about this idea of what what submission looks like, I I think you, you say, I want to play the Jesus role in the way it's played in Philippians 2. That I am giving myself to the will of God the Father. If Jesus wasn't too good to give himself and to submit himself to the will of God, neither are you. Let us together, husbands, wives, men, women, submit ourselves to the good and loving and blessing authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because it's in submitting to Him who laid down His life for us that we will truly live. It's in submitting ourselves to Him that we will be blessed with eternal life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for hard texts and hard teachings. Thank you that your word sometimes feels like sandpaper on our souls. Because ultimately, that which pains us gets rid of some of our rougher edges. That which rubs us the wrong way is pressing us and molding us into the image of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to yourself. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you will glorify us according to your word, according to your promise, according to your loving authority that reigns over us. Jesus You are our King, and we submit ourselves to you alone, and we pray in your name. Amen.